On this episode of Lifespan, three women, Robin, Amanda, and Jacinda, talk about their children's births by cesarean section. Their stories also appear in a remarkable book, My Cesarean, 21 Mothers on the C-Section Experience and After, that Amanda and I will talk about at the end of this episode. I have a professional interest in cesarean surgery. I've written about the reasons for the rapid increase in the surgery between the early 1970s and today. In 1965, the cesarean section rate in the U.S. was 4.5%. Today, it's 31.9%, with no better outcomes on the population level for either women or children. This is a problem. Major surgery is always to be avoided unless it's medically necessary, and that's because surgery has risks. There's the risk of blood loss, there's the anesthetic risk, there are post-surgical complications that can cause pulmonary embolism and intractable infections. And specifically in the case of cesarean section, in later births there can also be life-threatening problems with the placenta, problems caused by the surgical scar from a previous cesarean. On this episode of Lifespan, we won't be discussing why we perform so many cesareans. What we are going to do is ask women to describe their experience of giving birth by cesarean section. Understanding the ramifications of patients' experiences improves patient-physician communication and medical decision-making. Learning from patients' experiences helps physicians and future patients make wiser choices. And listening to mothers, who often make the health decisions for their entire family, is especially important for improving our healthcare system. Before talking to Robin, Amanda, and Jacinda, I have an important reminder. Even though we are doing too many cesareans and the overuse of that surgery creates unnecessary health problems for some mothers and their children, when it's necessary, the surgery can be life-saving. And to remind us of the life-saving potential of cesarean birth, we're going to begin with Robin's story. My story is so graphic that I just sort of wanted to make people aware that, you know, the, the edge of the extreme is a tragedy beyond all reckoning. And what happened to me, which was basically my son died of birth trauma because of a delay in a C-section is so unusual that most women have never heard about it. And so I wanted, I wanted people to hear about that kind of a story. And it is something that's forgotten in, in our discussion about cesarean sections. You're so right. Yeah, almost nobody knows anybody that's ever lost a, a child. You almost never hear about death in childbirth or, or death of a child in childbirth. It's so vanishingly rare and never discussed, except for, you know, the occasional stillborn. But, you know, we're so lucky that we live in a time when it's so rare. But what it means is that it, it doesn't enter people's consciousness as, as, as much as it used to. So my son lived for nine days. But seven of those days were because we kept him alive so that he could become an organ donor. So I knew after two days that he was going to die. But I didn't realize until about day five that I would have died had it been another era. I lived in an apartment building and my neighbors next door had been missionary doctors for years in infectious disease and pediatrics in developing countries. And they came to my door. This is one of the terrible things about having a neonatal death. You know, they came to the door with flowers and 
food and they were all congratulating me because they hadn't heard the news. So I had to tell them in my doorway that my, my son was going to die. And they came in and, you know, it was terrible. And But they both said, when they heard the story, they both were like, oh my God, you should be dead. You would have been dead had this been in, in any of the countries in which they'd worked. What year was your son born? He was born on June 1st, 1994, and he died on June 10th. Robin hasn't mentioned it yet, but she's a physician, adding yet another dimension to her experience. I broke my water the night before watching Jay Leno. He made me laugh so hard that I broke my water. <laughs> and, uh, you know, called the OB, and they, and they were like, yep, come first thing in the morning, come in the morning. And because uh, I was, you know, already like 1.30 or so. This whole pregnancy was without a partner. I was a single mother by choice. Um, so I had a large support system, including my, my parents had flown in a few days before, and my, uh, my sister had been out there, and my best friend had been there. They had actually flown back because I was so overdue, but I had a doula and I had a number of friends. You know, the general guideline is that you want to try to have the baby out within 24 hours so that you're at less risk for infection. That's why doctors decided to induce Robin after she checked into the hospital the next day. So then they started the Pitocin, and then I, went, I definitely went into hard, hard, hard labor. It was one of the most astonishing experiences of my life. And I labored for, I guess, probably really serious hard labor for about 10 or 12 hours. And then it was time to push, and I pushed for a couple more hours. And then it just got stuck. And I was pushing like crazy and... You know, it was really clear that I was doing all the physical things, but the baby just wasn't coming out. So the OB, who was not my regular OB, she was a, a different one, tried forceps and a vacuum, and I don't remember in what order. And those didn't work. And so they said they'd have to do a C-section. I was so exhausted. I was like, whatever, you know, or just make me completely unconscious and do whatever it is you do to get babies out. I didn't care what they did. I was exhausted. And I am a physician, so I'm familiar with ORs. And, you know, that wasn't particularly traumatic. It was just like, okay, you do A, you do B, you do C, and now it's time for D. And I still didn't know anything was wrong. You know, I found during this that all that medical training is the first to go. I really was not thinking in medical terms, except for sort of like that, the logistics. You know, my arms will have to be out and I'll need an IV. But I wasn't thinking, this is a catastrophe, I didn't ever think, oh, my God, they couldn't do vacuum. Whoa, that's like bad. I, I just I did not know that things were going so badly. I, I have sort of a dim memory of the uh, OB looking really grim. But I don't remember anybody else's faces in particular. And then this this terrible thing happened where they did the incision. And then there was this long pause. I mean, maybe it was three minutes. It was a long time where nobody said anything at all. And I knew that there was a lot of pressure, but I, I didn't sort of realize that they were just killing themselves to try to get this baby out. It was just so stuck in my pelvis. They finally, finally, finally got him out. And it was just complete silence. And I think I like cried out, is there something wrong with the baby? 
or what's going on with my baby or something. And then everybody started saying, it's okay, it's okay. You know, he's with, he's with the pediatricians and he's pinking up. And after another minute or two, he finally cried. And I heard one of them say, okay, he's back with us. One minute Apgar won. And that came back to me. I definitely knew what an Apgar one looked like. I had seen that. And basically what it means is the only thing that the child has going for it is a heartbeat. The Apgar score has been used since the 1950s to assess an infant's condition first at one minute and then again at five minutes after birth. Babies get zero to two points for each of five signs, heart rate, respiration, muscle tone, reflexes, and color. That means a perfect Apgar score is 10. A baby who receives an Apgar score in the 0 to 3 range, which was where Robin's baby was at with his one-minute score of 1, immediately receives focused attention from a neonatologist because a score that low can signal severe neurological abnormalities. So it was, you know, just epically terrible. I mean, just unimaginably terrible. I mostly remember just this unbelievable incisional pain. Just It was just exactly like having melted silver, you know, poured on this straight line in my belly. It was just unfreaking believably painful. And plus I had the whole vaginal thing. I was all torn up below and torn up in my belly. And the, they'd had to really, really, really stretch the incision. And it was, yeah, it was the most epic pain I've ever had. And then the next day they brought this beautiful baby to me and he really looked great. And he was, you know, he was awake and he was alert and he was, uh, I'd named him by that point, Ryan, and people started coming in and they told me that he had some bleeding, but the natural history of brain bleeds in kids was improvement. And I just couldn't go there. I was just like, okay, okay. Oh, he needs another CT. Okay. The next day, I think that night and the next day, I was really begging them to let me get back with the baby more because I'd only been with them a couple times. And so they wheeled me down and uh, I went to the NICU. But they'd sedated him a little bit for a CT or something. And he wasn't really responding to me. But I pressed my hands, my fingers under his ribs and he pushed back. That was the last time that he ever responded. And now it's uh, 25 years ago. And one of my goals right from the start was to have this ridiculous, insane loss have some sort of meaning. So I've always used him and our experience to help other people know about survival and know about living through unbearable nightmares and bearing them. You know, you know the entire time you were talking, um, that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm going to start crying. Um, that's exactly what I was thinking, that you have made Ryan's life so meaningful. And I, I'm so sorry that you had to go through this. It's, it's, it's painful to listen to. I can't fathom what it was like to live through it. Every verb and adjective and adverb about impossible pain all applies. And it was utterly, completely 
eviscerating and soul destructive and impossible, but then it is possible. You've had two children since Ryan's death. Right. Thank goodness. Yes. And both were by cesarean section. Can can you talk just briefly about those births, your your approach to those births, um, especially given what you'd been through? Well, one of the things that I did was I stuck with the same OB. Like, I totally trusted my OB, you know, who, again, was not the one that was on duty that night. And, and the one that was on duty was, by that point, not in the practice. She was gone. That was an incredibly good decision because I ended up in the same office and the same hospital. And I had Kenzie, my oldest, 18 months after Ryan. So there was, it was still very much the same staff. So that turned out to be, from a logistical standpoint, just fantastic. I mean, the nurses all knew me. They all remembered. They were super attentive and super celebrating. Of course, I was going to have a cesarean. I mean, that just went, you know, like, obviously, we're never going to attempt a pelvic birth again. So, of course, we're going to have a cesarean. We're going to have it as early as possible. We're going to make it as safe as possible. And Sharon, my OB, was like, you know, a total lunatic. She brought the head of OB. I mean, she was a very experienced surgeon, but she brought in the head of OB and they had two pediatricians and, you know, a long line of nurses, most of whom had been with us with Ryan. And my parents were there again and best friends and all that. It felt as safe as it could possibly be. You know, it felt completely controlled and totally safe. And I knew better how to recover. So it was a, it was a great experience. It was a great, great, great experience laying there and seeing that baby get lifted up into the skies. Sharon was crying, and half the room was crying, and it was, it was awesome. Three years later, Robin gave birth to her third son, Cooper, also by cesarean section. Just turned 20 this, this weekend. I was just able to super enjoy the birth. It was just great, you know, and it was also much simpler. There was a lot less scar tissue from a, you know, sort of technical standpoint. And, and Sharon knew, I had the same OB, same team, a wonderful anesthesiologist, and um, who just kept saying what an honor it was for him to be there. And it was just great. And I got to do total skin to skin and really bond with him in the delivery room. And then they kept him with me because, you know, with Kenzie, they were so scared. They kept taking him in and out. And, but with Coop, they just left him with me. And, I ended up in recovery with him, which is unusual after a C-section, but it was great. And I remember the nurse there was telling me that she she remembered Ryan. She, she, you know what she told me? She told me this is the gift of being at the same institution. A lot of bereaved parents can't go back. You know, they just can't bear it. But it so worked out for me because this woman said not only did she remember Ryan and remember our anguish, but she remembered the flowers we left behind and the champagne in the refrigerator. And that, that's just such a gift. I needed this level of anguish to have some greater meaning and really do hope that Ryan's little comet life does help other people.
Now we'll hear from Amanda. The circumstances of her cesarean, which she had about seven years ago, were very different than what Robin experienced. I had gone to a birthing center. So I had met with, I think, I can't remember how many midwives there were, eight to ten midwives um, at this birthing center. So I had met with all of them over the course of my pregnancy. It was sort of like whoever was on shift uh, at the time of, of my labor would be the person who would deliver the baby. So I got to know all of them. I saw some of them twice. And I was really hoping for just a vaginal birth. Um, and I was a little bit scared of C-sections because I think partially because I knew a lot of people who had had them and there didn't seem to be a reason for them necessarily. And I wouldn't presume to know their story, but it just seemed like a lot of people were having them and I'd read about the high rate of C-sections. I'd also done a lot of reading about the process of, of labor, but every time I got to the cesarean part of whatever book I was reading, I would just graze over it because I thought, I don't think that's going to happen to me. When we had to watch vaginal births in our birthing class, that was less scary to me, even though I knew it would be a great amount of pain. And I was scared of that. But the cesarean just seemed like this major intervention that I was nervous about. When Amanda was a week past her due date, one of the midwives asked her to come in for an ultrasound. After the ultrasound, she told Amanda that her amniotic fluid was low and that they'd give her a little more time, but that they probably would have to induce her labor. At that moment, I didn't know that I was going to have a C-section, but I was nervous because um, I had read that this is kind of where it starts, right? Um, someone says, well, we're going to induce labor. And, and for me, what ended up happening is that they gave me the Pitocin and I just never dilated. And this went on for two and a half days. I never met that doctor, by the way, or I met him right at the end. But people kept coming in like the midwives or the nurses and they'd be like, well, he's saying, you know, if this doesn't happen by this time, that we're probably going to have to do a C-section. And it was just sort of like this faceless person who was, who was saying that. So eventually um, on the morning of my daughter's birthday, they said, we have to, we have to do the C-section. And and I immediately started crying, and it wasn't an emergency, but they said, you know, we really should get her get her out of there because we've tried everything. You know, it was a big disappointment for me. I take it the birth center had a low rate of cesareans, right? They did. I think it was something like 8%. So it was very low. What I came to realize afterwards, actually, I did more reading about it afterwards. Probably too much reading because it made me feel worse. But I did a little more reading afterwards, and it seems as if people still don't have a very good idea of what happens when you go into labor, like what things line up in your body to make that happen in the exact way that it happens. Like there's still a little bit of uncertainty around that, even though we think we act like there isn't. There's a lot of uncertainty. We don't even know what triggers labor. Scientists think that somehow the fetus triggers labor, which then they think, well, if labor hasn't been triggered, the baby isn't ready to be born, but they don't know. That uncertainty, when someone says to you, we need to do this, in the moment, you're thinking, I don't know what I was thinking. I can't even remember what I was thinking, but I know that I was just nervous. 
I had a bag full of things that I thought would be helpful. I had a robe for, I thought, well, maybe I'll have a water birth, right? Um, and so I had, I was ready with comfortable things. And instead I was in a linen gown, the usual, right? Um, and none of it went to plan. And I'm okay with things not going to plan. I just feel like we put a lot of responsibility on ourselves when we create that narrative of agency around natural birth. And I think that's good, but sometimes I think it can make us rigid. My memory of going through the induction and trying to get labor going is that I didn't really work very hard. You know, I remember doing labor lunges and when they tried to induce, I did have some labor pains, but nothing was really happening. And so in my memory, I didn't work very hard. But this went on for a really long time, um, a couple of days. And James, my husband, says, uh, you were working hard and you were in a lot of pain. You were getting contractions. He's like, I watched you do all of this for two days and you were exhausted at the end of that. And it wasn't just from the surgery, even though that does create its own intense exhaustion, right? But in my memory, the way I've told the story to myself, it's that I didn't do a marathon. The way you just described it and the way I heard you repeat how your husband describes it, what I was immediately thinking was what you did was heroic. The way we capture those memories and the way we freeze them in our brain, um, we tend to be pretty critical of ourselves as women. Yeah, I agree. The decision has been made. You've been told that you need a cesarean section. You are upset. Take it from there. I started crying, and everyone seemed a little uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and the surgeon came in, and I had met her once before, and she actually did one of my ultrasounds. She, When she was doing my ultrasound, she wanted the baby to move somehow. She, like, punched out on my stomach and my uterus and with her fingers to get the baby to move. And I just did not like the way that she did that. She was kind of a secondary surgeon. And then there was a primary surgeon who was perfectly nice. Um, and so they were there and everyone was a little uncomfortable. So then they, they gave me, I remember they gave me the epidural and that was the thing that I, w I was very scared of an epidural and what I remember most distinctly is that it felt like a needle and thread was going up my spine. At some point they put in a catheter, but by that time I couldn't feel that at all. Um, and then I'm in the hallway and I remember my husband's face at some point looking at me um, as we're going down the hallway. And then the next thing I really remember is being in the, the operating room. Um, I don't remember anyone but the midwife who was there um, on shift. And she was the first midwife I had met. So I was actually very happy that it was her. I was shaking from the medicine. It, I was cold. I know that I was glad to see the baby. <laughs> but I don't know if I had a moment where, you know, that moment that everybody talks about where you're like, and then I saw her face. And I loved her instantly. I had so much medication in me, and this was so unexpected, that that moment isn't a moment of clarity for me. 
I had a vaginal birth, and I'm telling you, it was a birth I was very happy with. However, I was so exhausted after she was born, it never even occurred to me to say, let me see the baby. I was literally the last person in the room to look at her. My only thought was, phew, that's over. And going back to your point about the pressure put on women, about the way it should be, it's mythical. We don't do women justice by talking about birth the way we talk about it. I asked Amanda to describe the aftermath of the cesarean. I think we were in there for three or four days um, after the surgery, and everything that involved movement for me was very painful. And for a while, I had the catheter in, and I've never had a catheter in before or since. And I was so grateful for that. Because it meant that I didn't have to, after they took it out, and then I didn't have to roll off the bed. And it it would take me at least five minutes to just get off the bed and slowly make my way to the toilet. And then I would have to lower down to the toilet. And they're like, don't use your abdominal muscles after you have the surgery. Well, you quickly realize if you have any kind of abdominal surgery, like, how important those muscles are to every single thing that you do. But just lowering down to the toilet was awful. My husband was there with me the whole time. So he would be there for this process with me where he's walking with me slowly. You know, he's perfectly capable of walking at a brisk pace, right? And he's walking with me. He's standing. He's waiting. He's handing me pads And just, you know, looking exhausted, too. Because while I'm lying there, the only thing that I'm doing is breastfeeding. I wasn't even very good at that. I didn't even feel very good at that. But Amanda ended up breastfeeding her child for three and a half years. And I really enjoyed that process. And I think part of the reason it went on so long is because that was one thing that I could do. My husband is, like, doing everything else. I didn't change a diaper till I got home. He learned how to swaddle the baby. I could not get up. That that's and how how much pain I was in and and he was there, you know. Shortly after returning home, Amanda felt the most excruciating pain she had ever experienced, and the pain kept getting worse. When doctors discharged her from the hospital, no one asked her a routine question asked of all post-surgical patients before discharge. Have you had a bowel movement since the surgery? She hadn't, and she didn't know that was a problem. Not knowing the cause of her pain, Amanda's husband drove her to the emergency room trying to reassure her. The ER doctor readmitted her after explaining that no one should have discharged her until her digestive tract was fully functioning again. Amanda never complained to anyone at the hospital about that serious oversight and the pain and fear and temporary inability to care for her newborn that it caused. A lot of people who have not experienced the cesarean, what matters to them at the end is that everybody's okay. You know, you don't want to just bitch about everything that happened to you, you know, because at the end of the day, I was okay, but I still felt terrible about it. You're talking about the normal rhetoric again, whether it's the rhetoric of natural childbirth or the rhetoric of as long as everyone is okay, let's not worry about anything. But the rhetoric that we use does not 
honor women. It doesn't help us go through what we go through. It doesn't make it better for us. It makes it worse. So I've always kind of cringed at the, well, at least everyone is okay. Yeah. Because that makes, that kind of glosses over the things that shouldn't have happened. Yeah, but it's like, what else is there to say? And now Jacinda will tell her story. She was interested in natural childbirth long before she gave birth herself. That's one of the many reasons she describes her two births by cesarean surgery, one in 2004 and the other in 2009, as the most upsetting events of her life. I don't call them births, actually, but their deliveries were hands down the most tragic thing that had ever happened to me. When I was younger, before I had kids, um, I made a point of visiting an intentional community every year. And um, one of the ones I visited was one of the oldest intentional communities in America. It's called The Farm, and it's in Summerhill, Tennessee. And one thing The Farm is famous for is midwifery, because Ina May Gaskin, who many consider the mother of modern midwifery, raised her kids there. And... She became kind of what the one thing that the farm was known for. She is legendary. She is. She is. But one of the things I most remember is that I met her daughter-in-law, and her daughter-in-law told me all about midwifery and that we have deprived women of this powerful thing. She called it witchcraft, actually. She said, we've deprived women of the witchcraft of giving birth to their own babies, like with no painkillers and no intervention. And it became a powerful part of my cosmology, even before I knew it, that I wanted to give birth naturally. What do you think sparked such an intense interest in birth before you were either pregnant or married? My mother, she's a really powerful woman in a lot of ways. She would tell me that when I had a baby, I would become powerful. Um, she said, you know, the experience of like being in the hospital with people seeing you, you know, with your legs spread and you're pushing out a baby just just makes you instantly powerful. And I wanted that for myself because I had always felt weak. I'd always felt weak in relation to her and giving birth was going to instantly turn me into the most fiercest mama bear ever. <laughs> you know, and that this would drip over into all other areas of my life, and suddenly I would be this fearsome, powerful one. So I, I bought into that, and I think, you know, I, as much as I want to indict the birth industry for creating a C-section rate that is much, much higher than it, it should be, I also kind of indict the natural birth movement for making women feel like um, I'm actually getting weepy talking about it, and I, I, I mean, I can't, I, I can't tell you how traumatic, um, how traumatic it was to to have two C sections that that I didn't want, but but I, I sort of indict the natural birth movement because the natural birth movement would have have you believe that this is all up to you, that um, if you just fight hard enough with the doctors and have your doula on hand and 
do the right yoga and eat the right things when you're pregnant, that you're going to have this wonderful, natural, beautiful birth. There are two lies. One is that this high, ridiculously high number of women who have C-sections in this country actually need them. That is a lie. But the other lie is that we can control something like whether your uterus is too high in your body. Even conjuring up your old emotion, too, speaks to how central childbirth is to women's lives if they have had children. No matter how many years distance we are from it, we still remember it more vividly than almost anything that that ever happened to us. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. And and it, you know, I, I mean, I think one other kind of unfortunate thing that we all have in our heads is that this moment will define your entire mothering experience. Um, and, and I think I very much had this in my head, and, and that's why it was such a disappointment, because I had failed before it even began. It took me many years to get over it. When I went to birthing classes also, and this is a continuation of my wanting to sort of like indict the natural birthing movement a little bit, the birthing classes treated the C-section component as though as though this were the most tragic outcome, you know, and I, I remember <laughs> the instructor was like, but don't worry, this isn't going to happen to you, but we want to show you this film just in case. And I remember the woman in the film was so upset and distraught and crying because she was having a C-section. You know, I think that these classes have a flavor that's sort of predicted by the politics of the town in which they're <laughs> you know. You are so right about that. It's, <laughs> it's very culture-bound, very culture-bound. Jacinda moved to another state, a more conservative state, the week before her first birth. I lived there, I think, a week before I gave birth, and I, I, just, I didn't know anybody. I had found this doula. I don't even know how I found her because this was before the Internet was, you know, the, the tool we all use. So I went to the hospital, and I knew already there was some statistic because I had called and asked. Over 90% of the women who went there to give birth got epidurals. And I remember my doula like towards the very beginning of my labor, which turned into a 27-hour labor, towards the beginning, this nurse walked in and said kind of nastily to her, make sure she gets an epidural. And my doula said, okay, I will. And I had no idea like how doomed I was at that point because I thought, oh, you know, she's just ha-ha making small talk with this nurse. But people kept coming in and, and just dangling it like candy, like have this epidural. And I said, no, 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 I don't want one. I went through 27 hours of labor. I was in so much pain. I, I vomited. And I got to hour, you know, 26 or 27. And they said, you're at eight centimeters. You know, why don't you go ahead and have this epidural? And by then, I was just so exhausted. And my doula was not the most supportive person on earth, let's just say. My then-husband was kind of sleeping in a chair. And and I thought, you know, okay, centimeters, I'll go ahead and do this. Well, my labor completely stopped once I got the epidural, which is something I knew, you know, I had been told could happen. And then hour 28, um, I had a C-section because my my 
kid's heart decelerated. I had a partial hysterectomy in 2016, and my gynecologist said, your uterus was so high that I had to scrape your stomach off of it a little bit, you know? She said, there's no way you could have avoided C-section. And it's something that my second OB had said as well. She said, your uterus is just so high. She's like, you know, I've seen a thousand women, and I'm telling you, you need a a C-section. Does that remove some of the trauma? (laughs) Yes and no. Okay, so had I fought harder for this natural birth, I probably would have killed my children. But nobody wants to feel like they're physically defective such that they would have somehow stopped the evolutionary cycle if (laughs) if left unsented. Jacinta talks about her second birth, five years later. By then she had moved again to yet another state. There were a lot of kind of aging hippies there. In some sense, there was support for natural birth, but not really because the hospital had banned all doulas and midwives. You know, at that point, I I wasn't too exercised about that because my first experience with a doula had been just completely awful. I had an OB who promised me that I could do a VBAC and she was going to try for a VBAC. You know, she didn't make this comment about my uterus being high and and, and tight until, um, I think, week 38 of my pregnancy. Like, seriously, until then... I was aiming for a view bag. I I was, like, working out. I was, like, really trying to be healthy and have this view bag as if I could control nature again. So we get to week 38. I was so traumatized by the first birth that I kind of avoided prenatal care to a large extent. I finally went to an appointment. That's when she told me, I mean, I think I was like 36, 37 weeks or whatever, that this baby was breached and and it was going to have to be a C-section. But I did everything that like folklore tells you to do. She turned around. She actually turned around, you know, by the next week's appointment and so then this woman is like, I still can't be a V-bag. You know, you're high and tight, and I think you're headed for another C-section. I was so angry. There was no way to switch doctors. There was a doctor who was known for doing V-bags, and he was in the practice. And and my biggest hope was that she would be out that day, and he would be the one on call. That was, like, my only hope. But that didn't happen. I waited and waited. I was like, I'm not going to go in at the first sign of labor because I know they'll just slip me up in like a hog, you know. So I waited and waited until they were coming just minutes apart. And I went. My mom wheeled me up. And when I got to the hospital, my contractions stopped again. So I sat there for days. You know, and my OB didn't even believe that I was having contractions until they put the monitor on me because she just really wanted to get this C-section over with, you know. So there was so much pressure on me. She she said, your feet are swollen. I said, my feet have been swollen for five months and you've said nothing, you know. And then she she said, your blood pressure is high. I was like, my blood pressure has been high for nine months and you <laughs> said nothing. I actually, I even got my blood pressure down. Like, I drank lots of water, and I just lay there. It let lay so still. I got the blood pressure down. 
I passed my mucus plug. I was just ready to go, you know. The anesthesiologist came in and, and said, why don't you just have this C-section? I mean, he sat there at the edge of my bed, like, trying to pressure me into having a C-section. And at that point, there were absolutely no indications that I wasn't going to give birth vaginally, none. I was there three days total. By the end of the third day, I just felt so just forlorn and defeated. So I finally gave in and I said, okay, I'll have the C-section. And I remember lying there being slid open and and just angry. So like at this moment that should have been so wonderful, I was so angry. I felt like a failure. Like I wish you knew me in some other context because I sound like this angry competitive anal retentive person and I'm really not you don't sound like that you do not (laughs) (laughs) you you sound like a very thoughtful measured you do not sound in any way like that thank you thank you for some reason this ratcheted up just all kinds of ugly things in me I could not stand to hear other people's birth stories like I would just start crying and and I'm sorry (laughs) Oh, that's harder than I thought. Oh, I am so sorry that this happened to you. I'm, you. I'm really, really, really sorry. So it was just a little triumph here and there. You know, when I finally got divorced, um, I began to finally feel that I had claimed some sort of power in my life. But it took a while. Yeah. As someone who has written two books now about about childbirth, you know. Part of the problem with modern American medicine is that we do think that we somehow have control and that medicine offers guarantees, and it really doesn't. I mean, I'm getting outraged on your behalf. When you describe yourself as being slit open, that is a very powerful way to describe a cesarean section. Because we have so normalized it, we're in denial that it is major abdominal surgery. You saying that is you taking your power back. Anger is taking your power back. Thank you. You know, cesarean sections can be life-saving. There's no question about it. We're doing way too many, but they can be life-saving, and thank goodness we do have that option. Robin, Amanda, and Jacinda wrote essays about their children's births, and their essays are part of a remarkable book titled My Cesarean, 21 Mothers on the C-Section Experience and After. The book is edited by Amanda and her co-editor, Rachel Moritz. Amanda explains how writing an essay for that book and then editing the book helped her to heal. I think that one of the best things that that happened to me in terms of me wrapping my, my mind around this experience was doing this call for for essays with Rachel Moritz, who also had a cesarean, and we sent this call for C-section essays out. There really is no other book that's devoted to personal narratives about C-sections. One that's just straight up personal narratives with many voices. So we thought if we had had this book when we were going through this, this would have been very helpful. We would have known that we weren't alone. There are online forums about C-sections. I went on those forums to see if I gravitated towards them, and they just weren't very helpful for me. 
a lot of it was about look how much weight I've lost already or here's my scar. Isn't it terrible? But it wasn't terrible. Like it was just like this kind of narcissistic exercise. There was nothing that really talked about like, here's what I really felt and have come to understand about this experience. And here's why it still bothers me. Even if people tell me at the end of the day, everything was fine. Here's why it still weighs on me. And so to read the essays of the many mothers who had had this experience, like that's the one thing that really helped me to know that, you know, I can't solve the injustices of the medical system. They should be solved. We clearly have a problem with maternal mortality rates in this country and too many C-sections. But to know that there were other people who had experienced this and who have deep thoughts about it and who to this day continue to think about it, even if they had their C-sections decades ago, it was very important for me. We need to listen more closely to women about birth experiences if we're going to improve obstetric practices and birth outcomes. The book, My Caesarean, 21 Mothers on the C-Section Experience and After, is an excellent start. I'm going to end this episode of Lifespan the same way I started it, by saying that cesarean surgery should only be performed when medically necessary, and the criteria for a medically necessary cesarean should be explicit. That would benefit both the women and infants who could be helped by a timely cesarean, as well as those who don't need the surgery. I'm Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University and the host of Lifespan. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. Olivia Stefanoff is our audio editor. Adam and I are Lifespan's executive producers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lifespan. Join us next month when we learn about the experience of cancer and cancer treatment in two different cultures and two different healthcare systems.